Welcome to Trending in Education, a very special learning engineering, learning science series that we're kicking off here with an old friend who's been on the show back in its early days. I'm really excited to have Broer Saxberg back on the show. Broer is the founder of Learning Forge. He's also an amazing follow if you want to understand how brains work, how learning works. We're going to talk about parenting today, but it connects to a lot of different things. Roar, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. It's great to be back on chatting with you as we've done a number of times in the past. And this is, I think, a particularly fun area to talk about, partly because kids are just fun. You have yeah. them and mm -hmm. you have little people. I've had little people. They're now older people. Yeah. And so it's just fun to watch them change and, and, and move. But there's also lessons that we have learned from how development happens that are valuable there. Yeah. Uh, what, one thing, though, just to start, let me just begin with an, a, a note of total humility, okay? Uh, raising kids, as you know, is extremely humbling. And mm. honestly, the more you know about how it's supposed to work, yeah. the more humbling it is because it always goes off the rail. So let right. me just start from that point. Right of humility. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we can see what we want to talk about. So, you know, we could start with some of the early stuff. We could go, keep going and see yeah. what we get. What, what do you think, Mike? What yeah, I think to start, it might be good just to reacquaint folks with you and your background and the type of stuff that you do. And then I think from there, we can jump into how that connects to parenting and how kids and all of our brains develop and and, and so forth. That sounds great. So, yeah, I started life as a research guy. I used to do human and machine vision research at uh, MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, my daughter likes to say, before fire, before the iPhone. You know, it was a long time ago. It's always hard to remember which came first, fire or the iPhone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then over time, I transitioned from doing research on how brains work, minds work, to actually jumping into the world of ed tech in the mid-1990s. And mm -hmm. ever since, I've just had a series of assignments where I've been using what we know about the sciences of learning and motivation to try to improve learning experiences at scale. Mm -hmm. So you and I met back when I was the chief learning officer at Kaplan. Yep. Uh, before that, I helped start a, uh, a learning company called K-12 Inc. I think it's yep. now called Stride. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, moved from Kaplan to actually head up learning sciences at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiatives mm -hmm. education uh, work. And then now more recently, a couple of years ago, I started Learning Forge, which is basically a little consulting firm to help all kinds of organizations think through how can you use learning science to improve the outcomes of learning and keep iterating over time as well. So that's kind of, that's what I've been doing for a very long time. Yeah. And a credit to you that even besides us knowing each other from our Kaplan days, you are name checked on occasion by our guests. Most recently, Nafez Dukak had cited Broer Saxberg. And I was like, Broer, you talking to me about Broer? And, you know, besides that, also running into you at South by Southwest EDU, it's as if the stars are aligned and they are saying, we need more Broer Saxberg in our lives here at Trending in Education. And then to your point, I am the father of a kindergartner now. So he's just about to turn five and he's in kindergarten. So, you know, it's almost like we're coming up for air after the crazy Absolutely. run that is the first five years. That also involves a lot of brain development and a lot of stuff going on there. But we also wanted to kind of span parenting a little more broadly when we talk about this to say, 
as parents, how can we leverage some of the science that's emerged around learning, cognition, all those things that are out there? Where would you want to start that conversation? Yeah, and I think both for just chronological reasons, but also for learning science reasons. Let's just begin at the beginning and start with the early stuff. There is a lot known now, much more than there used to be 30 years ago, about you know how these little brains developed from the beginning and how crucial it is to get them started in, in really great ways because mm -hmm. it's like a down payment that just keeps paying dividends year after year when you get things started the right way. Mm -hmm. One really interesting resource is the something called the Brain Story from the Palix Foundation, which is based up in Alberta, Canada. What they did was to try to digest a lot of early childhood development research and turn it into stories, basically, that are easy for anyone to kind of understand and keep in their heads. And so they drew on things like Harvard's Center on the Developing Child, research by Jack Shonkoff, but others as well. Um, and so th this might be a good place to just start yeah. some of the stories that they tell. And if you just Google the brain story, Palix Foundation, you'll find this. I see it. Um, yep. And, you know, a, a really interesting starting point to me is to think of doing good work with really young kids before they have language. One of the, the, the metaphors is it's like the foundations of a house mm. that if you can get that to work right, then everything else will go better over time. Right. Don't get those foundations to be well-built. It's tough later on because mm -hmm. the foundations are still there. So the yeah. foundations really matter. Mm. A second piece that's a really nice insight is this idea of serve and return. You and I were just talking about that. It comes yeah. out of the research. Because sometimes people think, Look, little kid can't talk. So what's the point of talking to a little kid? I yeah, we are, is the kid playing pickleball with me? What are you, what are you talking about? Sir? Yeah, you know, and so can I, you know, how, let, let me wait until they have language and then I'll engage with the kid, right? Right, like, right. No, that's not how language is acquired. What you want to do from the very beginning is engage repeatedly in serve and return with the kid's own attention. So mm -hmm. if the little person is looking at a teddy bear, then you look at the teddy bear and you talk about the teddy bear. If the, the little one is looking at their food, then you're looking at the food and you're talking about the food. Mm -hmm. It could be they're just kind of randomly looking around, right. but that's okay because the words and the language and the support you give them basically charges up their language system. It's mm -hmm. how you know, now we can use terms like neural network and people all over seem to know what we're talking about. Didn't used to be the case. Right. But this is how you train a little human neural network is right. by exposing it repeatedly to language and reinforcement. And that's how you can get things going. The other thing it does, too, is it helps create uh, agency, confidence, a sense of belonging, because you are paying attention to what they are paying attention to. Yes. And that, again, pays dividends long term because it's the, you know, the baby's version of respect. I am right. being respected. And so that can help with resilience uh, over time in terms mm -hmm. of the kid beginning to feel like I belong here. I, I'm a part of this, whatever this thing is over time. Right. Uh, so serve and return is that notion of just keeping going back and forth. And at first you may not get language back, but over time you do. And it's really important to keep doing that, frankly. Heck, I'm still doing that with my kids who are 30 and 28 and right. 32. Right, right. We're still doing server return back and forth. Yeah. Um, 
Another piece that's really important is to understand the impact of stress on little kids. Mm -hmm. And there, there is good stress. Good stress is like a brief moment before you, you know, jump into playing soccer or, right. you know, or, you know, engaging or, or saying something to somebody else. York Stodson, right? I'm in the, I'm in the sweet spot. I'm not, I got a little bit of energy, yeah. but I'm not joking. I'm not freaking exactly. out. Yeah. And the idea it's, just, you know, it, it activates you. It kind of makes you pay attention. Even little people makes them kind of pay more attention than it's kind yeah. of, Ooh, I have to do this, but it's temporary. And that's critical because the worst kind of stress is long-term day after day kinds of stress mm. that come from, and of course, you know, we're still post COVID and yeah. you know, the, the, the economy can be stressful for families, which yeah. can create stresses for the little people and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things, and actually Jack Shonkoff at this uh, Harvard Center on the Developing Child was one of the early people to point out that the actual hormone that's activated in stressful situations called cortisol, yeah. it can mobilize resources when it's just there for a brief period of time. Right. But over a long haul, being exposed to cortisol has all kinds of negative impacts on yeah. your health, hmm. but also even on learning. That it turns out cortisol actually gets in the way of learning. It, it stops the neurotransmitters from doing their work to actually create change. Right. So you, you really want to shy away and solve problems with a little person that are high stress, that keep having stress running in their environment. Um, right, and in right. fact, one of the things the Center for uh, on Developing Children has been doing is, is trying to work with pediatricians and pediatricians' office is to look at levels of cortisol in kids and find, mm -hmm. you can even find long-term markers of cortisol in kids' hair, it turns out. So huh. you, don't even, you don't need blood samples. You can actually do some analysis on hair samples to see that. And they're experimenting with that and trying to see if they can make that all work. Wow. And so that's a key thing then for parenting is to realize it really makes sense to try to decompress at home, you know, to kind of bring down stress levels. And, you know, we, you know, we all rely on our families for a variety of things, right? But when right. you have little people in the home, yeah. or you can be present and supportive and not negatively reactive, the right. better it is for the little people to, to learn things. Um, yeah. I've always thought of it, you know, since I discovered the server and return research, which is really interesting. I've always thought of it as almost like improv parenting, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit of yes. And where you're looking for That's some right. kind of signal from your kid. And I'll never forget when my son was maybe a little past a year. He was just, I was holding him and he would just stare at this light over my shoulder and go, ooh, like just look, ooh. And he wouldn't make eye contact with me and it was driving me crazy. But the reality is the fact that he was looking at the light, I should have turned around and said, ooh, you it's know. It's a light. But instead, yeah, it's being so bright. Back, I was hoping he would connect with me, Broer. And instead, the light was much more interesting at that age. But it is fascinating to me, especially the early age, how in some ways they're smarter than us. They're certainly faster learners. They're making more oh, yeah. connections and they're oh, yeah. assimilating their world around them much faster. And, you know, so both being tuned into that so that you can return their serve and then also being aware enough of yourself as a parent to realize I need to model 
calm. I need to model exactly. the repose that will allow us to recharge. And at the same time, I think it's a good note. Be aware that cortisol and stress helps at times. And we do have to rally. And that's part of how we're wired. Right. But you just need to be able to turn the dial down from turn time to time. And this is, it's such an interesting point you make and comes up, you know, that modeling point in my mind comes up, you know, the kids have tantrums, right? This yeah. is the classic challenge of the two-year-old in the movie theater or the grocery store or wherever is least convenient on the doors down from the bus. That's yeah. the moment where there's a meltdown and blockage and all this, right? Right. And it is a, a stressful moment, right? It just is. And the thing to realize, I think, is especially the little kids, and there's another version in adolescence, which we might get to, but mm. for the little kids, you know, they're not trying to get your goat. They're actually reacting to having too many things happening at once, to being mm. unable to make a decision, to feeling like things aren't going their way. And, yeah. and they don't have, as a little person, the resources yet to kind of talk it through or mm. have the patience to wait or whatever it is. Right. The, the key then is patience on the part of the parent, as you just said. And it's, it can be really hard because, you know, you, you are feeling the social pressure all around you of people's eyes looking at you. And it's like, what's wrong with this person? They can't control their child and et cetera. Yeah. But in fact, you really have to, you said, you know, improv, right? You, you have a role to play in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that role is to be supportive to potentially, yes, move away from the setting. You right. Know, so you're not in the middle of everything that you're somewhere else. That's probably yeah. for your <laughs> well-being. But it's also just to help with getting the little person out of the multiplicity of stimulus yeah. uh, triggers that, that may have been part of what's going on. Yeah. It reminds me of the idea of the redirect too, right? That's the yes end. It's like, yes, I understand where you are. But rather than doing this in the street or doing this on the bus Let's do it in a quieter yeah. location over here because look at the toy in the window, you know? We're going to wait for the next bus. We're going to sit for a little bit here. Exactly. You know? And then the other part is, you know, these things, the storms always pass, right? And that's fine. And then, again, depending on the age of the child and language capacity and so forth, it's actually a good idea later, not like on the spot, but potentially later to even have a conversation about, mm. hey, remember yesterday when you felt all kinds of emotions and it yeah. was difficult uh, for us to keep going from there. Do you remember what happened or, and also what can we do? Yeah. What can we do to not have that happen again? Mm -hmm. now, and the first time you do that, you may not get a lot out of that interaction, but that's right. okay. Part right. of what you're doing is modeling that it's not bad. It's not an, it's not that the child is bad. It's just, yeah, this happens. Right. And, get very upset and it's okay to talk about it later right you know and then try to problem solve right, and right. so you're modeling that notion of oh, i still love you and i still think you're terrific let's talk about what happened because that's not great to right. have it again and let's see what can we do either both of us uh, to do that better and so i think that's a key thing to think through that even in that difficult moment of a tantrum you're actually still yeah. able to provide modeling for the mm -hmm. child. Now, it, it can be tough. And, you know, this is where, you know, partners and friends and all this spouses are great is, you know, when you get a little yeah. distance from the child, sure. then you can blow up. But right. 
not with the child. You know, well, and so, yeah, and in some ways you're modeling again, saying like, I need a break. I need to yes. step aside for a moment. And daddy, daddy needs to cool off for a minute. But however we get to this point, for some of us do make it to kindergarten. We make it to be like a parent of a five-year-old. And then it becomes <laughs> a, a new set of challenges in the next phase. If we're kind of following this progression as parents, then they get into those early elementary school years and what is learning science what does your background sort of any advice or thoughts uh, yeah. to share about that phase yeah and you know there's tons potentially but again you know for parents there might be a few things to keep in mind that are helpful one is a little i guess cognitive science 101 here which is you know the way we all work basically is we have working memory and long-term memory that collaborate. So working memory is the first stop for things coming through our senses. And so when we watch things and listen, the first place those things land is working memory. And working memory has a number of things that are you could look at as limitations. It's narrow. It can't pay attention to too much at once. It can be slow to process what's going on. However, it's really creative. That's the place where new things get put together and new things happen. Mm -hmm. And it's also the gateway to long-term memory. This is where, you know, repeated practice using your working memory gradually puts things into long-term memory. Now, right. long-term memory has very different characteristics. If we only had working memory, it'd be pretty hard slog, right? Right. But and and actually, just, and just real quick, yeah. too, on, this is where the computer analogy of how brains work and how cognitive processing works is really interesting. If you look at the history of cognitive psychology, cognitive science, where that was a real breakthrough. And then interestingly, it kind of went back in the other direction around neural networks now where, okay, we kind of understand a little bit how the brain works. How do we apply that to how computers work? We're not going deep on the AI conversation in this episode, but that is something we also talked about. And it is interesting to think yeah. about how we think about like memory banks versus you know, RAM is another way you can think about working memory. Yeah, working like memory. Actually, what yeah. are you actually processing versus what's stored as data? So some it's of those themes I think are interesting and they're deeply connected. Your background is not unique in the connection between cognitive science, cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence research. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. And so the, the metaphors work both ways and have been helpful both ways. You know, a brain is not actually a computer. However, the information processing ideas that grew up in the 1950s that led to things like computer languages, mm -hmm. as opposed to just ones and zeros being literally by hand put into, you know, the, the vacuum tubes, right. you know, before, that notion of, well, we can describe information processing at a higher level that led to what's called the cognitive revolution around learning about understanding, well, wait, we don't have to know what every neuron in the brain does. Right. Maybe we can study the information processing, knowing it'll be a lot noisier than what we can do in a computer. Hmm. And that's where you have these models that have now been proven over and over again around working memory as one kind of information processing hub that minds have. And then long-term memory, very different characteristics. As the name says, it's, it lasts a long time. It also acts really quickly. It can recognize something or process something very fast. It can do many things in parallel. Mm -hmm. It is also nonverbal. That's one of the interesting things about long-term memory. So, you know, when you talk to somebody who's expert, wh whether they're kids or adults or whatever, 
often they do, they don't know all their own expertise. You, right. you know, somebody who memorized 150 Pokemon cards, it's just like obvious that's Squirtle or that's, you know, right. Pikachu or whatever, right? Right, right. Look at their parent as an idiot because of course it's Pikachu. What are you talking about? Now, I may be dating myself in terms of Pokemon references. That's part I of I think my... Pikachu is kind of evergreen. I think you're okay. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a forever meme. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so this is really important to have this distinction between working memory, which is verbal, which is where our yep. self-talk lives, mm -hmm. and long-term memory, which is where we put things that become patterns and key resources that can get drawn into working memory for free. Right. So it's, you know, looking at a chessboard, to me, I'm a bad, I mean, I'm truly a bad chess player. Like I'm not being, you know, humble brag here. I'm like, what does a queen do? Right. I'm totally bad. Right. And so for me, just trying to remember the moves of the pieces occupies my working memory when I'm looking at a chessboard. Mm. Whereas somebody who's quite good at it will look over my shoulder and say, wow, don't you realize your queen's at risk? And I'm thinking, which one is the queen? <laughs> which one right. is the queen? Right. The other person they've already internalized the whole board at a glance. Right. And it's shoved right into working memory that, oh my God, this guy is about to lose his queen. And it, it's not even, the pattern comes in. It's not like I have to right. think it through. It's like instantaneous. Like yeah. Another example I can use for adults is like driving. You know, that you can drive to work and you're not thinking about driving. In fact, what sometimes happens to people is, I will set out planning to go to place A and then right. I end up at a Starbucks right. because I've been thinking about something else during the time that I was supposed to be driving to place right. A. Although that reference, I think, I wonder about how GPS dependent we're becoming and how many folks would suffer GPS blindness. This is something we intentionally turn the GPS off just to make sure we can still generally navigate the, the local neighborhood yes. so you yes. don't have to be well, reliant. What's, what's also interesting about that is in a sense, if you keep looking at the GPS, you're continuing to use your working memory. Mm. So actually, you're going to have trouble planning your vacation mm -hmm. while staring at the GPS, mm. right? So in fact, what you more likely do is, you know, I, I know exactly how to drive to work or for to Starbucks, right? Yeah, so I right. just set out mm. and I, I don't even set up the GPS. Or yeah, whatever. right. But now what can happen is long-term memory can run driving for free, but it might swap cards. It might, instead of going to yes. work, it yes. could go to Starbucks. Right. And you might not even notice. Right. And so that's kind of memory is busy. Yeah. That's like the idea of being lost in thought, right? Like, so like you're going so deep into that stuff that the stuff that's for free is almost on the wrong subroutine. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason this is really relevant for parenting and kids is there's some things that are happening for kids that come for free. I mean, like, Learning a language, both listening to it and speaking it, man, you don't have to give these little people lectures, right? They, they just, it just kind of emerges yeah. because in a way, the neural network is primed mm -hmm. to get languages. And there's all kinds of research about how cool that is and Noam yeah. Chomsky's work. And yeah, same thing, motoring around in the world, you know, right. beginning to get up and walk on two feet and then right. grab things and manipulate and all right. that, right? I just was at a five-year-old's birthday party at a trampoline park. So I, I get what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And th those things come for free. The, the, the trick is we, we sometimes get fooled into thinking, wow, 
all learning should be as easy as mm -hmm. learning to speak or learning to walk or whatever. The problem is most of human learning is not like that. It's not pre-wired into it. So specifically like reading, for example, yeah. speaking and, and listening, those are natural. They're just, they happen for free. Reading is not natural. We don't have any machinery yet, maybe ever, that's evolved mm. to help us with that kind of symbolic translation from yeah. marks on paper into words that then, you know, access all our speaking and, and listening skills. And so that means you have to do a lot of practice and feedback that in working memory mm. to begin to create those fluencies in long-term memory mm -hmm. that then give you for free once they're there. Yeah. This is the word with, this is the word elephant. These are the parts of this word that now I can put together and get, right? You need that to be in long-term memory. Right. So when a new word appears on a page that you haven't heard before, right. you can recognize parts of it. And so you can sound it out, which mm -hmm. then kind of gets it into your speaking and listening parts of your right. brain that are wired there. And this and is like grades, like one through three, although increasingly like K, K, K through three now, because yeah, it exactly does seem right. like they built a lot more of the pre-literacy and exactly. maybe some basic numeracy into K through three, because there's a lot of assessments that then happen that right. frequently are correlated to where you might go with the rest of your sort of learning journey from that point. Right. But it's really... If, you, if you're not caught up by grade three on basic literacy, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to catch you up and you can really start fa falling further behind. Well, and the good news out of the learning sciences work really over the last half century is we know a ton about how to help almost all kids reach that kind of fluency, have those key patterns in long-term memory by the time they're in second or third grade. Yeah. But you have to start early and you have to start with the letters and sounds and Right. Making the kid become aware of sounds. Yeah. Well, this is the other aspect of read alouds is the other thing I've yes. seen a lot more of and reading stories to your kids and having books in your home. It, it does bring up some questions around equity, which I know is something you've thought a lot about as well as, you know, CZI and really throughout your career is like, how do we figure out how to address some of that. Any thoughts or any insight uh, well, on that? I think a key is, as you said, is you start from what we know about learning and also what's needed to be in long-term memory and then mm -hmm. how does working memory, long-term memory work together. And then you look at the context, try to figure sure. out, okay, in this child's context, what are the key things that need to be going on? And one of the things you said, which is so important actually, is for reading and other things, you need a lot of information to flow into that child, not simply from reading, but actually from conversations, from yeah. stories. Mm -hmm. And for example, there's a great organization, the, the Great Books, Great Books something. I can't remember what the last part of it is, but they have something called Junior Great Books, which are basically stories, kid stories, you know, classic kid stories, together with suggestions for how to read through them and how to stop from time to time and ask some questions mm -hmm. and ask questions about what has happened, ask questions about what is happening, ask questions about what is about to happen. Yeah. So that what you're doing is you're helping that child not just enjoy a story because you, you, you do that too, but also perhaps in rereading it, 
to then be thinking ahead and thinking about why did this happen and thinking about what's come before as a way of helping to prime their ability to then be kind of analytic by using spoken words and listening faster than what the reading skills will get them. Now, eventually they'll be doing the same thing with reading things, right. but you can start them earlier. And then the other part of this is just having, you know, information about the world and what's around them and culture and all kinds of things coming in. It's going to come in through their play and their conversations with everybody. Right. So no harm done in being a little bit intentional. My, uh, my, my wife was uh, a little over the top on this because she used to read the New York Times to our kids in the mornings uh -huh. as part of the, that's a little over the top. Right. Although I admit, we are actually talking about maybe getting a subscription for The Economist for our one and a half year old daughter. You know, we got to up the game a little bit, right? Right. But I, I would say part of this is, you know, anywhere that you are around and living and working, serve and return mm. is a great opportunity to keep talking about what am I doing? Why are we here? What, what, you know, what, yes. what are prices? What are, what are we buying here? Why do we need this? What are we right. going to do? What do you think we should do with this? Right, right. What do you think we should get next time? You know, right, and right. So this is the same kind of back and forth, thinking about the past, think about mm -hmm. the present, think about the future. And that really, you know, helps kids. It does remind me of my, my wife is a user researcher who one of the methodologies that she uses is talk aloud, you know, so while folks are, are navigating a website or whatever, they're talking a lot about what they do. And we're always joking that our four-year-old is a perfect talk aloud subject because he's always just verbalizing what's actually going on in his head. But that's the type of, and I imagine we probably modeled that for him so that he learned it by yeah. watching us. But any other advice on the early ones? Because then I'd be curious more since you have more of a window into my future here where you've also navigated some of the teen years into yes. leaving the nest years. But any parting thoughts for the early? Yeah, the, the, the one other thing I would say is that math is harder for parents to support most parents than reading because mm -hmm. reading is around. I mean, and again, it's really good to be conscious about the reading and to share what you're reading and why you're reading it and how we're using reading to solve our problems and make decisions about where we're going and all this. Math is not as easily accessible, but in the same way, it's really important to try to make use of numbers visible. So hmm. there's all kinds of things you can do. And again, there's a completely natural free part of math that brains have around some number sense, mm -hmm. but it stops pretty early. Hmm. It doesn't go very far. Things that you really need are things like number lines and yeah. fractions hmm. and what's bigger than what and mm -hmm. things like that. And those hmm. are some down payments you can start to make by, by playing games, yeah. by talking about prices and buying right. things. This is daddy's justification for having sports on the TV all the time because there's a lot of numbers on the screen. It's really in support of his learning, bro. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, this is like, you know, give that baseball glove to your mother. Absolutely. Because you're supporting, you know, supporting her and her interests and all this. And, but also kitchen stuff, you know, mm. cooking is yes. filled with fractions ratios and numbers and, and all yeah. kinds of mm -hmm. ratios and all that. And again, just... The talking about it, even mm. again, just like with language, you're not going to get on that serve and return. You're not necessarily going to get much back, mm. but you want to keep talking about it as you're doing it and even traveling. 
how long will it take to get there? Yes. You know, we're we're going to be halfway there in this amount. So that means we need to be ready for the next amount, right? And so we do that in our own heads, silently yeah. and quietly. When do I plan a bathroom break in the drive and I'm going to be, right? It's like, yeah. no, no, make it verbal. Yeah. Talk it through to say, okay, you know, in another hour, we can find a place to stop. That'll take us this much space and so forth. Yeah. And it'll seem silly in some ways with a little person who's one year old or two year old, but get into the habit of talking about the numbers as you keep going. So, mm -hmm. and the reason it's, it is harder to get those examples. And so it's really valuable to pay some attention to where can I find spots to actually talk about numbers and quantity and yes. larger than and smaller than notations mm -hmm. of fractions and things like I that. I really, especially for road trips, uh, I, it does seem like there's some natural, we're always thinking math, whether it's, you know, time to destination, gas in the tank, speed limit. Like there's a lot of numbers. And that's true probably of other contexts. You just almost, to your previous point, you just take it for granted. It's all implicit knowledge. For, and that's the thing. For the adults, it's already in long-term memory. Right. So it's, you know, obvious and, you know, don't need to verbalize it or, or in some cases get to the conclusion right. with no verbalizations. But this is where it's good to get into the practice of trying to actually verbalize it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But so let's talk a little more about, you know, kind of adolescence and things like that. There's actually a, a really fascinating article by a researcher at UCLA named Mary Helen Imordino Yang. That's a wow. mouthful. Okay. Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Yes. The article, and it, you know, people should go look at this. It's called Building Meaning Builds Teens' Brains. Hmm. And what she's synthesized and summarized is a whole bunch of research and practical implications that indicate that the adolescent years are a time when the brain really reopens for development. That, mm. you know, it's, and now there's good and bad here, right? How did my compliant, friendly, planful fourth grader turn into this? crazed, lurching, impulsive eighth grader, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's not always pretty how this goes forward. But one of the things the research suggests is it, it is in that adolescent period, middle school, early high school, this is where kids become really open to and motivated by social inputs, hmm. inputs from their peers, a sense of what am I doing? Does it give me status in the mm. world, especially mm. among my peers, but just in the world generally? Mm. So there's terrific opportunities during that time. And we can talk more about that in, in a minute, but especially in this article talks about this notion that you really want to help kids not only think concretely about problems and skills and why is this happening near term in terms of, you know, crime in our city or whatever it is. But you actually also want to encourage them to think more systematically, larger thinking about causes, about yeah. underlying reasons for why this person is acting in this crazy way. Why would that have come about now as opposed to earlier and so forth? Hmm. And it turns out in this article, it talks about how you can actually see the impact of that kind of back and forth between focused on kind of local concrete thinking back and forth with broader, what are the implications of this in the world, in my life, to my family? Right. It actually changes how 
think the things, networks of neurons called like the default mode or, right. or other parts of the brain actually work together over time. And so want to give kids that opportunity to kind of cycle back and forth with that because this is the moment, the window, yeah. to make a huge down payment that will then last for the rest of their lives. So I got about six, seven years for the brainwave monitors to come online so that I'll be able to just adjust the dials so that when I see the wrong, you're not in the default pattern, you should be, I'll just adjust the dial and that'll get the boy pointed in the right direction, I hope. Don't know if that's uh, going to be there in time for your five-year-old right, right, when they get right. to be 12 and 10. Yeah. Um, but the other part of this that's worth saying is it, it's a little similar to what we talked about with tantrums uh, in the you know the younger set, which is you're, you're going to have door slamming. You're going right. to have shouting. You're going to have stuff like that. And and it's particularly confusing because it seems like, wait, th- it wasn't like this a right. couple of years. Well, I, this is where I, one of my favorite terms from age, age zero to five is the three-nager, where yeah. he was a bit of a three-nager. And even as it went away, and it's mostly gone now, you do realize that level of fit still exists come in back. all of us. Yeah, come and back. it's going to come back in a few years. Right. Yes. And part of that is because, and this is what some of the you know neuroanatomical and functional magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging work has shown is... Mm. A forebrain, the part of our brain that is the wiring for doing planning and things like that, yeah. it kind of goes under construction in adolescence. Yeah. So it goes offline, actually, literally goes offline. And so th- there is a, a, a neural explanation for why this is happening. It's not because the kid hates you now. Right. Is trying to do you dirty. It's so being, if I'm if I'm no. hearing you right, you're saying that teenagers become reptiles. If I'm hearing you right, yeah, maybe a little higher <laughs> on the phylogenetic spectrum, but it's, okay, yeah, they, they're losing, yeah. they're losing the reptile brain. You're using the the hind brain, not the forebrain. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. and yeah. and so and and hence you have impulsive behavior. People, kids, adolescents right. don't think it through. You hear that all the time. Yep. Why do you think it through? And it's like right. the machinery is actually down for the count. Hmm. Part of the reason this is valuable as a parent to have in your mind is as the person melts down or slams the doors, screams that you don't love them anymore, all those kinds of things that are going to happen, unfortunately, it's valuable to keep in mind, okay, this is a brain now that's back under development. The parts that will come back online and help us get to goal are just not working well now. So again, modeling, just it's patience. It's work. It's not... You don't want to accelerate by yelling back. You actually, even though, yes, you're a human being too. You know, that kind of thing is right. hard. You, you're playing a role. Your use of the term improv is so good. It's like, I got a role here and yeah. it's improv, but it is a role and I got to play it. And it's about support, listening, and not dissimilar to the little person is you got to wait out the storm. You, you got to wait to have kind of more rational conversations till the storm is over, mm-hmm. but you can be supportive and make sure things are safe, et cetera. And then the same thing, come back later, right. a day, two days later and say, you know, God, we, that was tough. You know, there, there, was, you, there was anger and loud words were spoken. And I don't think we got very far. Right. Remember what happened? Why did we end up in that? Right. And what can we do to not do that again? What's the, what do I can, what can I do? What should you do? Right. How do we not do that again? Right. We can't figure it out. And it's the same thing. It's modeling that you can talk about these things. Right. And it's also uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert that like, we're always dealing with 
our emotions and yes. frustrations and challenges in life. And that's something that comes up off, often when we're talking about teachers. One one other note I wanted to hit with you before we wrap up on parents yeah. is that the other role that's in this space that you spend a lot of time thinking about and working with is teachers. Any notes on how parents and teachers can work together and how you kind of connect maybe the informal learning at home with the more formal stuff that happens in school, but any thoughts as we close here uh, on how maybe teachers are connected to the conversation? Yeah, well, in part, you know, teachers, same thing, you know, how do they handle all those kids and, you know, the emotions that happen yeah. in their classrooms. And so what you would like is for the parents and the teachers to just have open communications about, was there a meltdown in class? Was there a meltdown at home? What was behind that? What caused that? And then have a conversation about, how do we do some work? How do we get some work to try to make sure that doesn't happen again? Similarly, on the academic front, more and more, I think, teachers are beginning to pick up on the science of reading. There's now the Reading Wars work that's now changed how people are doing. And so there can be some pretty rich, evidence-grounded conversations between parents and teachers about what are we doing in class to, with practice and feedback, and what can you do, and what are you doing at home mm -hmm. with reading out loud, with you know, following along with additional, you know, help to give practice and feedback where families can do that. I mean, they can't always do that, but sure. you know, where, where they can actually do that. And so I think there's a lot of, you, you want to make this a continuous experience around the kid rather than discontinuous because right. if it's discontinuous, then it's just confusing for the kid. What, who am I listening to? And, you know, whereas if they both are singing off the same, you know, song sheet, then the kids are naturally just hearing it multiple places and it's going into long-term memory in the most efficient way possible. So yeah. both on the emotional side, but also on the, on the kind of the academic side. Yeah. I was struck by the serve and return concept also for teachers, I would imagine as well. Can you, mm -hmm. that's the problem where there's, it's a numbers game too. Like how many, if the, of all the tennis balls are coming at you at the same time, you can only pay attention to so many, but trying to catch the other term I've heard is catch them being good too, like trying to yes. find the right things to reinforce and always have the head on a swivel looking for those signals to try to yes. figure those things out. Now, all of this talk of teaching and parenting and kids learning as they grow, it does bring me to the topic of motivation. How do we continue to motivate ourselves to get up in the morning, to continue to power through, do the hard things that we know we need to do? I know this is something you spend a lot of time thinking about, Broer. Can you share with us some of your thinking on the topic of motivation? Yeah, now that it's such an important area because we've been talking a fair bit about like the cognitive science, working memory, long-term memory, but there's another whole dimension of people and little people too that you have to pay attention to, which is motivation. And motivation here is what gets people to start, persist, and put in mental effort. So I want to be careful about that definition because sometimes when people kind of informally talk about what's motivating, they're also thinking, well, you know, do they like what they're doing, right? Do they like what they're doing? From a learning science standpoint, what will change your brain is if you start, persist, and put in mental effort into well-designed learning activities. And liking is one of the reasons you might do that, but in fact, it can be independent. And, and, you know, we know this from sports. We know this from arts. Yeah. You know, people don't love the weight room usually. This is right? eating, this eating your vegetables, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's, but I have to do that practice. I have to get stronger. 
I have to do the scales. I have to be at the bar and for yeah. a dancer. I have to be, you know, oh, doing. When you said you had to be at the bar, I, I, I immediately know, and, went to I, a different bar. I know, but yes. I immediately added dancing, realizing, oh, hey, got to be careful here. Practice. Well, we won't go there. That's um, a whole so other conversation. It's a whole other conversation. But so, in, in fact, we get this already. And, you know, uh, no pain, no gain. We have all kinds of phrases mm -hmm. and all that. What's interesting is, you know, we often don't think enough about what gets in the way of people starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort, mm. especially in the worlds of academics and skills connected to work and things like that. Right. Uh, and these things are really true across, you know, little kids to grownups. Little kids often can be motivated by what makes their parents happy. And boy, is that great secret sauce. That's so much fun, right? Yeah. Ah, that goes away. <laughs> and so, you know, you're, you got a, you're a five-year-old. You don't have too many more years left where yeah. that fuel that. Enjoy that, while, while it lasts. Enjoy yes. while it lasts, right? But in fact, just like four different things. A, a really good researcher, uh, Richard Clark, uh, did a, a review of motivation pieces. And if people want to find these, he can look up my last name, Saxburg, and then Richard Clark and motivate, yeah. and they can find the article uh, that's about this. And the four things that go wrong out of his look at many different disciplines of research, behavioral economics, social psychology, motivational psychology, et cetera. One of them is that you don't value what you're doing or why you're doing it. And so, you know, I'm a dancer in a algebra class. I want to think about Swan Lake. I got no reason to think about X's and Y's. Right. And in fact, the solution is how do I link what we're doing in algebra to what's valuable to you, like running a dance foundation? Mm. How do you know you have enough money to last over time to pay for the tutus in the theater and all this? It's like, oh, well, that's modeling. That's algebra, right? Mm -hmm. And so now I have a reason and a domain. And part of this is the domain of a dance company is something I have in my long-term memory. So I understand what it is that I'm talking about. Now I need new skills. And so I'm not trying to learn about a dance company at the same time as I'm trying to learn the new skills. A second thing that goes wrong is I just don't think I'm any good at it. So another dancer, same algebra class, I'm just no good at math. I've had that reinforced to me over many years. It doesn't help to then say, oh, a dance foundation. It's a different problem. So there, the solution is more like, let's show how this algebra work is similar to work you did as a dancer to right. get good what you were doing. You started at the beginning and you worked forward. Let's make a plan to figure out where are you at and let's build practice and feedback so right. that we dance. And let's tell stories, hear stories mm -hmm. from other artists right. who didn't do any good at math either. But then right. how did they discover their passion or their capacity for that? What is that like? So that's totally different than the first one of valuing. So and that, that one's interesting also in that I think great teachers frequently are able to make those types of connections absolutely and, right. and tell those types of stories that translate right. something that is more abstract or niche or seemingly in, irrelevant and then turn this into something that is front and center. Exactly. So like the interplay between motivation and relevance is yes. really interesting as Very well. Very much so. And spoiler alert, this could be a connection into potentials use at AI. But we'll come back to that later. Later, yeah. much later. Nice, nice. The third thing that goes wrong with motivation is you blame something in your environment. My teacher hates me. My kids used to say that. And I was like, what does that have to do with your brain? I mean, yeah. even that's true. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just why I don't start persistent put in mental effort. My teacher hates me. Or have you seen this textbook? It's totally confusing. So I shut right. down. Right. right. Or I don't have space. Or... 
popular among professionals at all levels, I don't have time. Right. Oh, it's important. Oh, I could do it, mm -hmm. but I just don't have the time. Right. So then I don't start persistent but mental effort. The solution there is problem solve around what you just said. So don't have space. Let's find you a desk. Let's find you a place in a library. Let's find you a spot at schools after school. Yeah. Don't have time. Let's look at your calendar. Let's figure out how can we move things around and so forth, right? And so part of it is you're also modeling you can solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Let's take out the schedule. Let's look at where you work and where you walk and what's around you, right? So mm -hmm. that's the third one. And the last one, which is arguably the hardest one, is negative emotion state. Mm. If you are depressed, if you are scared, if you are angry, or post-COVID, if you're grieving, I mean, there's yeah. so many families that... Yeah. It is really hard to start persistent putting mental effort. And so you really do need to have some support around that. And it may be as simple as a supportive conversation, but it can go all the way to professional help. And that's yeah. where school psychologists and all kinds of things become a part of the mix, potentially. Mm -hmm. for yeah. mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at, you know, there's a little brewer, he's slumped over sideways again, uh, as he usually is, he's a lump, right? Well, what kind of lump is he, right? That's the point. Is he not valuing the topic we're covering? Right. Does he can't do it? Is there something in his way that he's not able to get going on this? And or is he just bummed? I mean, yeah. is he, you know, out and under stress or whatever mm -hmm. it is? Mm -hmm. Well, now I can have a conversation to figure out what's going on with little Brewer and yes. then what we can do. Parents can do this. Teachers can do this, right? But it's a totally different thing. And then designing instruction, as you said before, to kind of pull on the things that are motivating. Right. So you can do this. Let me show you right. why you can do this. Let me show you how it connects to what is, you know, in your world. And mm. let me make sure we clear out space, enough space for you to yeah. actually able to do this, right? It does also remind me of the coaching dynamic and yeah. tutoring, Very which has been really Very massive much. trend in education, yep. dating all the way back to the research about the Delta, you know, the, the positive effect of tutoring. But I always thought it was almost more the the non-cognitive aspect of tutoring, having like a trusted adult mentor who actually is invested in your success, like that alone, especially for kids who might not have that in their homes. Exactly. That kind of stuff can can really move the needle. You know, that notion of being able to support kids both on their academic development, their skill development, but also their kind of emotional development, their resilience, and then motivation to be thinking through how do we keep cross-connecting what they're engaged by themselves with the new skills that uh, will help them uh, in the long haul? And I think all of that is in the domain of parents as well as teachers to make a difference. Yeah. And perhaps that's a positive note too, where it might be a stereotype, but there's a lot of talk about the rising generations being very motivated and interested in causes like the environment and ways to kind of get out and connect in their community looking for those signals, trying to align that so that we can get folks started on their best pads. It's been amazing having you back, Broar. This is a, a wonderful conversation. As we conclude here, any final thoughts for our listeners as we wrap up? I, you know, being a parent, as I said, very humbling experience, but there's a ton that you can do to help your kids, you know, develop, feel safe, feel like they belong and find their interests and passions uh, for the future. Yeah.
And don't be afraid to ask for help, I think is implicit in a lot of this. Absolutely. It's hard for all of us, even those of us who seem to be doing well. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. Thanks again for listening. This is Trending in Education. 